Welcome to Visionaries. I'm your host, Jacob Wolf, a former ESPN award-winning investigative journalist and the founder and CEO of Overcome. Each week, we speak with some of the most successful and powerful people in gaming, new media, and the internet about how they do what they do and how they're helping change internet culture as we know it. Last weekend, Twitch hosted its first TwitchCon since 2019. More than 30,000 people attended. But as the event went on, it became more clear that during the pandemic, the fame and life of digital influencers had clearly changed. No longer just internet micro-celebrities, the most popular influencers from Twitch and YouTube were mobbed at the event and met with awkward parasocial relationships by fans who felt connected to them in an abnormal, and in some cases, dangerous way. The event also featured several physical injuries, including at a gladiator-style foam pit brawl sponsored by computer manufacturer Lenovo. One streamer on Twitch, adult film star Adriana Shekik, dove into the pit after winning the game and sustained two bone fractures in her back due to the pit's lack of depth and impact pads at the bottom. Shekik since undergone two surgeries to repair her back, and after being immobile for most of the week, was able to walk with a brace in a walker on Friday. To break down the chaos at the event, we spoke with Nathan Grayson, a Washington Post reporter who covers live streaming, digital influencers, and the creator economy. He's also writing a book, which will feature embeds with the likes of Amaranth, Hassan Piker, Ludwig Ogren, and others. Nathan Grayson, welcome to Visionaries. Thank you. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for inviting me on. I am a regular listener. Yeah, we've seen you in space. It's always good to have people who have been listening, engaging with the content and being able to come. So was this your first TwitchCon or yeah, it, or was this your, just your first one back? Um, yeah, definitely my first one back. I, uh, I went to the first TwitchCon forever ago. And also, I think most of the other ones, I think maybe I missed one over the years. But yeah, I've been to a lot of TwitchCons. If you had to describe what it was like being there, like overall, what what was the vibe like compared to previous years? I mean, the vibe, the overall vibe was similar in that people were very excited and happy to see each other. And I think especially so after the pandemic or, you know, pandemic still going on. But after lockdown, there was a lot of people who either were reuniting or had, you know, met over the pandemic via Discord or streaming together, what have you, and got to actually talk and interact in person for the first time. So there's a lot of that. People are very excited about that element of things. And then, I mean, if you're, I, I'm guessing you're sort of asking about the vibe in relation to kind of recent events on and around Twitch. Would that be correct? Yeah, I'd like to know that. And and I then we can dive a little bit deeper into more broadly, too, because I, you know, I went to TwitchCon 2018 and I didn't get to go to 2019, but it seemed like this was different. I want to dive into that a little bit, too. But yes, also, you know, you do a lot of reporting on the creator space. You know, the Twitch space really well and, and your sort of work over the past few years where people kind of mellow about the the compensation changes. Yeah, I mean, my my sort of like take on it is less. I wouldn't call it mellow exactly, because I think as we've seen, people continue to be pretty mad about them. That is a fairly resonant theme amongst anybody either who's streaming on Twitch or even a lot of viewers. But I think that there was definitely an, an overall sense that like what could be done with like that fury or outrage 
had already been attempted online mm -hmm. and that like at TwitchCon itself, people were just sort of like, yep, this is just how things are going to be. And so like, we'll keep being in this community because we care about the people that are part of it. But like in terms of, you know, getting people's faces, let's like change some minds. Let's like, and I don't think this would have done anything nor would it have been advisable, but like, let's yell at some rank and file Twitch employees. I like didn't really see any of that. Mostly I just saw people being like, yeah, I'm going to enjoy being here and, you know, talking to my friends, seeing other streamers. For example, during the opening like ceremony, right? There's a brief moment where Emmett Shear, head of Twitch, mentioned the 70-30 split and stuff like that. When he did that, especially given that the opening ceremony at least was a pretty packed hall, I was expecting people to be like, boo, or like, you know, make some noise about it, right? Nothing. Just and like, he briefly mentioned that there was going to be a like live version of their patch notes show in which they'd address it further um, that Sunday. So that was the final day of TwitchCon. And there was, and like barely anybody was there. Hmm. Like they did a, on the live stream of it, right? They did a quick cutaway to like show the audience because, you know, they wanted to show people cheering and stuff like that. And like, it was so dark, you couldn't tell. But I like went in that room and like, it was structured such that there are chairs down the middle and like two wings of chairs up the sides. And the side chairs were just, nobody and like the the middle area was like sparsely populated so it was just sort of like theoretically this was like a centerpiece of twitch's offering and that the idea at least as they told me behind announcing the 70 30 split changes when they did was that they wanted to have a discussion at twitchcon that they wanted to start by making the announcement shortly before and then carry the conversation into an in-person event but it seems like at least by that point people were not really interested in having that discussion anymore well, it also affects a really minor part of the website who I imagine either are exploring their options to go elsewhere or just giving up, as you sort of mentioned, and just kind of living with the consequences here, right? Like the, there was some reporting that I think De Devin Nash originally pointed out that like 5%-ish of have, have those 50-50 deals now versus like 20% from a few years ago. So like they've already been sort of hush-hush quietly reducing the compensation paid out to top creators and and again it only really affects top creators i mean i i don't mind saying this i'm a twitch partner on the platform and like my deal's always been 50 50 i was not in the 70 30 boat so and i've been a partner for like four or five years now so yeah i think i think it's it, it seems like it was only affecting the top people and that number is greatly reduced anyway yeah well i mean i think that the thing there though and like the reason there's so much outrage online is less the tangible numbers of who is being affected because yeah it was a small number of people no matter how you slice it and more that like Twitch took away something aspirational that like for creators who sort of, you know, occupied the lower and middle middle tiers, there was at least this idea that like if they stuck it out for long enough, then they could become one of the creators on a 70-30 deal. And like that's especially key, I think, in an ecosystem like Twitch, where so much of your time is spent like chasing a certain high of like viewership or subscriptions or what have you. And then just being like, okay, now how do I not fall off? Like there's so many there's so few positive reinforcement mechanisms on Twitch. Most of them are negative. They're like, oh no, I'm losing viewers. Oh no, I'm losing subscribers. It's like always this, you know, it's not a great feeling. And so the idea of something else out there that would just be like a, you know, for lack of a better term, like a permanent buff, right? Or something like that. You know, I think that was comforting to people. I think that they were like, yeah, maybe I'll become one of those people one day. And of course, like the numbers don't bear that out, but I think it's pretty similar to like the American economy, right? that mm -hmm. many, many, many people are poor, but they're still willing to support like 
the millionaires and billionaires of the world because they believe that one day there's a chance they'll become one or like they believe that they uniquely will are is, are qualified to become one yeah did did this twitchcon in any way feel a little bit more corporate than 2019 in particular so i mean in terms of like structure and the way they use the convention hall it was very similar like i mean you know meet and greets were in the same places all of that sort of a thing in terms of like it being corporate i think there was definitely a lot more like you know particular streamers bigger partners definitely like kind of navigating twitchcon in secret um in part because like I, I think that the the Twitch fandom is definitely like grown, you know, since 2020. And I think some big streamers in particular were not able to just roam the halls, right? If they did, they'd get mobbed. That was a security concern. Like some big streamers got escorted away from the show floor by security, not because of like, not to protect them, but because they're like, you can't be here. The, this is too many people. Like um, that was some members of the Dream SMP right before I interviewed them on Sunday, they had been like trying to run the show floor and then just like were stopped too much and had too many people following them. And so they're like, yep, they kicked us out. Yeah, it feels like and this is a part of the broader discussion I wanted to have about the convention and how it's changing is that it felt like, you know, I I decided not to go this year, but it felt like compared to past years, 2019, 2018, etc., that this TwitchCon really highlighted a celebrity culture that I think has developed over the pandemic. Do you think that's like a right assumption uh, that these streamers, this, this felt more like a fan event to come meet the big streamers rather than what it used to feel like, which was like networking and elbow rubbing and like a much more niche community. Yeah, I would say, I would say absolutely to that. I mean, with some caveats, I think it still includes an element of, you know, people like getting together to meet up with each other. But yeah, I mean, like the fan culture was on full display, like the especially amongst like the Dream SMP people. Again, like mm-hmm. that was a totally new and unique experience for me at TwitchCon. I um, was fortunate enough to attend their panel. And I say fortunate in that a lot of people got locked out. They just like couldn't get into the room. They couldn't. There were not there was not enough space. But I mean, it was truly wild. Like the moment that they started that Dream and then others like Carl and Sabnap and George Not Found, people like that started walking into the room. They did it one by one, and every single one of them elicited some of the loudest screams I have heard outside of like a packed, you know, like concert or something. Just like deafeningly loud, like cheers and applause. I like literally took out earplugs and put them in because I was like, I will, I will sustain permanent hearing loss if I sit through another minute of this. And yeah, like it was this, it was the same when they were walking down hallways. Like just any dream S and P person, if they were walking somewhere just a flock of screaming fans would like run at them. Yeah, it was truly wild. But, you know, it makes a certain kind of sense in that I, I think that like in terms of fandom and just sort of, you know, the the way that like they manifest online, like the, the Dream S&P community is sort of like a K-pop group or like a boy band. And so like you get a similar reaction in person. I think they weren't necessarily prepared for it. But I think if you like go back and look at how things have already unfolded online, you could probably have predicted that. But yeah, it was definitely a lot like that. And you had like, you know, I think anytime that like Hassan went roaming around, you know, you'd have fans of his come up and either like express adoration or like try to troll him as they would in chat. I think they tried to at one point get him to like, they're like, why won't you like debate this one guy who's like, you know, very far right. And he was like, because I don't want to debate a Nazi. Leave me alone. Yeah. So yeah, there was a lot of like, it definitely felt more like an event where there were fans there and they wanted to meet their favorite celebrities. Well, in that way, it seemed like, and this happens at every convention, unfortunately, there are 
kind of horror stories of things that happened, but this one felt particularly unique in that way. I saw like one streamer who's also a cosplayer said that she like someone like a woman randomly ran up and touched her boob and like poked her in the boob. And then like I saw another video and I don't know if this is the booth, so maybe I'm not mistaken. I didn't see what the the, the but I, I will say like I saw a video of Amaranth doing like a meet and greet and then like almost expressed a little bit of shock because like some dude bend down and presented his ass to her to step on which she did like what that wasn't the booth to be correct right like she wasn't doing step and that was a meet and greet it was just like a standard meet and greet though she wasn't like i'm gonna step on people just just to be clear no i do not believe so (laughs) yeah okay so it seemed like there was like a level of like terminally online internet behavior presented in its real life form do you think that's fair yeah and i think like you know if you look at something like, and I can't believe we're discussing this in such serious terms, but Amaranth stepping on somebody, right? That's also like it closes the loop because it's on one hand fandom. It's somebody being like, I know this creator and I want her to do something to me. But it's also like content, right? Like, of course, somebody like getting stepped on by Amaranth is like, you know, you can see the the video like title or the TikTok or whatever else they might make it into. Like easy content. So it's it's all... I, I think that like that's also one of the elements of this whole culture that's like all at once fascinating and kind of like it can lead to some weirdness, which is that a lot of like fans are also creators, creators are fans. Like it, it's not so strictly delineated as like there are creators and there are fans. A lot of the people who are fans are also trying to make a living at this or at least make a run at like doing it as more than a hobby. And in that way, though, I feel like. And again, I didn't go this weekend, so I'm asking you, I'm relying on your expertise here. It felt like it was different than the Twitch cons of old, right? That like this was like that amped on steroids. There was always a little bit of that sort of like fan culture. I mean, it's a gaming event, right? Like it kind of is what it is. So you expect some weird people just generally at at one of these like gaming cons. But this seemed like it was that like cranked. And, And did it feel that way to you that it was totally different, that something had changed through the pandemic? Yeah, I mean, again, I wouldn't go so far as to characterize it as totally different, but definitely different. It, it did not feel as like, I don't know, previous Twitch cons have felt, despite their size, kind of small and chill. And like, for example, that, you know, in some ways, like San Diego Convention Center, which is uh, often place host to Comic-Con, was like a little bit too big for it. But this year, I mean, you know, very large crowds could be hard to move sometimes. Lots of people getting stuck in hallways because like, this was a funny phenomenon. You'd see like one streamer with like their camera and everything getting mobbed and their little bubble or their little mob bubble would like pa- try to pass another one doing the same thing. And they'd sort of like get stuck together because there were too many people and it was hard to move past each other. But yeah, I mean, like it was definitely it was definitely different, but in sort of like immaterial ways, ways that you could feel but that it's hard to really entirely describe. Yeah. They're not exactly measurable, but like, I think it was right. even, even being remote and like not being there. I think at least, you know, you see enough tweets and videos and everything. And you're like, that's just not, not what I recall. Right. Like that's, and that's kind of how I felt looking on the inside out. I want to, I want to talk about that more broadly because you are a lot of your work focused on the streaming industry. You've done that for through this sort of what I would call like creator boom that probably is tangentially related to the pandemic and people being inside but also i think it's a shift in gaming interests right like it's it's i'm constantly sort of at a loss of how to call it but i think like the words i've settled on is gaming entertainment 
and that that is like different than esports, different than sort of gaming culture of old. And it and it feels like that's where the audience is going, right? That's something we talked about on the show at length with some of those people like Ludwig Ogren and and Stans and Adriak and some of the others who have been on the show. Why? Why do you think things have moved in that direction? Because I think that was also kind of noticeable in this TwitchCon that, you know, I didn't see a huge esports presentation in the same way that that we have other than rivals. But I wouldn't necessarily consider that like the hardcore traditional esports stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think there are a few factors to that. One of them is like if you're making the direct comparison with esports, just like gaming entertainers, content creators are, you know, broadly speaking, I would say more accessible. Like, you know, you can hop in in the middle of somebody playing a game and be like, oh, they did something funny. They said something funny. Whereas, you know, esports always comes with like, who are these players? What does this season look like? Or, you know, like, what does this tournament look like? There's a lot more baggage associated with it, a lot more history. And then also, like, there's the economics of it, which is that, like, esports and content creation now directly overlap because esports had so much trouble making money off of actual, like, teams and games and events. Instead, they were like, okay, well, what if we start contracting content creators as part of our organization, pulling money. So, I mean, like, I think you have that shift just kind of naturally because of economic reasons. But beyond that, I think that the other side of it is just that, like, I think this is already happening pre-pandemic, but, like, the content machine has sped up so much. Like, all of these platforms have become so efficient at, like, whatever the content of, at, like, propagating whatever the major thing or things of the day or of the week or whatever are. And also, I think that people have started to realize that, like, there is no line on what is content. Mm. Like, once upon a time, I think you would look at something like, you know, even the, like, Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial, right? And be like, I don't know. It's, like, about some pretty gnarly stuff. I think that that's sort of beyond the pale, right? Maybe we shouldn't be, like, slicing this up and trying to turn it into something that we can profit off of. But in this day and age, there, just, there really is no line. Like, anything that happens becomes content. You know, like, the week before TwitchCon or what week two weeks it was like all the try guys drama around the same time it was like everything surrounding twitch gambling up to and including like ms kiff allegedly covering up a sexual assault and like on one hand you know people cared about these things and were interested in discussing them but on the other hand like it was good content it was the thing everyone was talking about so you know you talk about that or you do something with it and your numbers go up and so like because this whole machine is so well oiled at this point Everyone's just like a part of it, kind of if, whether you want to or not, right? Like TikTok, for example, is a, was amazing at surfacing Johnny Depp Amber Heard to people who were not interested and basically like almost forcing them to become interested or at least forcing them to know the basic outline of it. And then that, that leads to checking it out on, on other platforms and so on and so forth until like everyone is sort of looped in on this stuff and everyone is like discovering different creators through these different major cultural events because creators have in turn realized that this machine is so efficient. So they've got to get on board like two, three, four years ago, you probably wouldn't have had Asmongold, for example, talking about Johnny Depp, Amber Heard, right? If that had happened back then, but this time you super did him and XQC people like that were all in on it because again, it was good content. It was doing numbers. Everyone knows because they measure their metrics now, which like, again, was not as much like people would measure metrics on Twitch back in the day but they weren't like also paying super close attention to like YouTube and Instagram and other things like that. Their metrics on those platforms too, which is also like, that brings me into sort of the third point, which is that now everyone is on everything. Like it is rare to find somebody in this day and age. who's like, Oh yeah, I just use Twitch. Yep. Like most of the time they're like, you know, if you look at their Twitter bio, it's got like a link tree out to all of their different socials, all of which they post to if they're doing well, pretty regularly. 
with like content that is at least tailored to those platforms, if not like wholly different from what they've done elsewhere. And so, yeah, it's just like everything is so efficient now and it's, it's wild. Yeah, it, it is. It's incredibly unique to this like period of time. Just like hearing you describe it in that way, it feels like in the in the same vein that Twitch production decommercialized and became more simple, while the sort of monetization engine of Twitch became much more commercial, right? So like, and what I mean by that is like, what used to be popular on Twitch were those types of esports competitions, right? It was the sort of big budget, you know, nice studio, whatever it may be, production. That was, and creators have been popular on Twitch for a long time, but I feel like 2020 really put that on a rocket ship and shot it in the moon, right? Where like it, it new heights, et cetera. And so the production has become less commercial. Now, like it, just chatting is one of the biggest, it, I think maybe the biggest category on Twitch, definitely up there. Oh yeah. And it's become. Yes, far and away. Just chatting is the biggest every compared to everything constantly without fail. yeah and it's just somebody xqc hassan whatever like sitting in a setup like i am right like microphone arm in front of me webcam some lighting right like that's not that's not mm-hmm. an expensive thing to produce whereas like twitch the the platform has tried to figure out how to be more commercial and those streamers have figured out how to be more commercial Sign with big agencies, right like figuring out how they monetize what they do more in a way that they did not some years ago, right? And and did you kind of feel any of the effects of, of that, that that shift, that like this is now, you were just start describing everything as content, right? And that everything could be filmed, mm-hmm. even the funny moments that are like parasocial and weird. But did, did you feel that the sort of culture around the convention, especially at a world where like at certain places you weren't supposed to be broadcasting, that things, things yeah. were changing in that way that like these creators were finding new ways to commercialize what they were doing even in an event like this i mean definitely like for one definitely what you're saying is true and like for example i mean in 2019 you know a lot of like major streamers had already signed with various agencies but i mean like the presence of just that part of that world was so much more like acutely felt there i mean you know to talk to any streamer you had to like go through their agent and stuff like that um agents were on at every party things like that um yeah that's out of that world it's just so much more again It's a a more well-oiled machine. It's a more standard part of what people do. Um, But yeah, then also like, you know, uh, every content creator there was either like IRL streaming or posting pictures from parties that they were at. TwitchCon is content. That's why people go to it. Like, but that's why big streamers go, right? Because like mid-sized and smaller streamers go to network and to hopefully like gain opportunities from being around those bigger streamers. Big streamers just do it to be like, I'm on camera here. Let's go. And to like, engage with their fans and stuff like that. But it was also interesting because, and again, this was also beginning to happen in 2019, but it was much more pronounced this year. There really is like basically a second TwitchCon for the biggest names, like almost any event that you would go to. Cause for one at TwitchCon itself, right? You have like partner lounges and stuff like that, but you don't really see like the biggest big names in those because they're too big and everyone, even in the partner lounge would mob them. Yeah. Um, yeah. There was like a little bespoke area in like the closest hotel that was only for Twitch partners. I actually tried to sit down and do my interview with part of the Dream SP group there. And somebody running the lounge came over and was like, You can't do interviews here. This is for partners only or for like streamers only. You have to get out. Wow. So we like went and sat on a little circle in a little circle on the ground outside that room. It was really funny. But yeah, 
And then like at parties, for example, like there were special like separate rooms for the biggest names only like the hundred thieves party had like a little basement area. So you had like all of these other relatively important people around like bigger stream or like semi large streamers, people work in esports, adjacent industries, even agents in this crammed into this bar, like shoulder to shoulder, huge COVID risk, by the way, they shouldn't have done that. <laughs> yeah. But then you had like this secret little room that everybody knew about with like two large bouncers on either side of it being like, you know, you can't get in here. This is like, and everyone's like, I heard Hassan's down there. I heard Lud Ludwig is down there. Like, you know, it it's fascinating because like, there's this idea, right? And I think this is like one of the main appeals of streamers and content creators of accessibility of like their people like you, you know, if you ever met them, you'd hit it off because you watch them every hour of the day and they seem just like you. So there's nothing between you except geography. And so they still need to maintain some element of that because if not, they lose their appeal. Yeah. However, in practical terms, if you don't have real physical space between the audience and them, they get mobbed. It's logistically impossible. And also they don't really necessarily want that. And so what that manifests in is a thing where like they're present off guards, but yeah. they are always a little bit somewhere else compared to everyone else. Yeah. And that's, that's new. That was not, that was not the case when I was at TwitchCon in 2018, even with the big people. I mean, like back then that was like the ninja shroud pop off year, right? Like in, in 2018. And like, I remember like Dr. Disrespect being there and like, even those people were accessible, right? Like they, they had like nice little VIP areas and like the Fortnite section for the big Fortnite streamers, but like it, they were kind of out and mingling even, even in the crowd. And it seems like that became a safety hazard for this particular TwitchCon. Yeah. Oh, definitely. No, there was a time when, again, a lot of this happened with like the Dream SMP folks. They far and away had the most yeah. like rabid fan base. And so like at one point I came out of the press room, which was sort of in a secluded area and there was just a wall of human beings at like the little guard rope that led to that area. And like to the point where I was like, oh, I can't get around this. I had to like go outside and use a side path. And so I asked one of the security people like, uh, what's going on? What is this horde of people doing? And they were like, yeah, one of the dream people just walked by for like two seconds. And there was like, it was probably at least 50 or 60 people. Wow. Just standing there, like trying to get a look like, you know, it. It, again, it was just like so, so different. What you keep circling back on the dream people. What's what I found really interesting about that is they're not even particularly like that group of Minecraft creators are not particularly Twitch streamers. Like they are. I don't want to say they don't use the platform at all, but that is not their primary means of content. They are primarily YouTubers, and and I think I find that really interesting because it's almost like TwitchCon is becoming just like another creator convention like vidcon or something else it, it you think that's right that it's sort of just the creator convention oh yeah no absolutely i mean for one like you also had very literally i think i don't want to say every major streamer that moved over from twitch to youtube was there but a lot of them were ludwig was there sakuno was there let's see who else did i see i think those are the main two that i saw but like you know a lot of the people who have moved over to youtube still went to twitchcon because like those communities now overlap more than ever. And then, yeah, just beyond that, again, because everybody is kind of using every platform, it's just pretty natural that you would have fans of, or you would have people who like primarily are not Twitch streamers or like that's only part of their operation being at TwitchCon. Yeah. 
Before we do get to the fun pit, I had one question I wanted to ask you about uh, that I forgot to mention or, or ask earlier is about Emmett Shear. Hmm. And obviously he was the key, like did the keynote opening presentation this, this year as he normally does. But I remember and have heard a lot of feedback, both from streamers and from journalists and others in the media about his Twitter feed, which <laughs> is predominantly not Twitch. If you go look at Immature and Twitter app right now, for those of you listening, like uh, there's almost never a mention of it. If you start scrolling through it, it's it's almost like he's not there. But he is, as I understand, behind the scenes, still involved, maybe not as much on the commercial side as as some of the other people at the top of the company. But what was the vibe like there? If you had to like give read him by looking his presentation on stage, did it seem like he was engaged or did it just seem like a leader who was there because it's his company originally? I, I feel like it's hard to read that far into what somebody is doing on stage during a presentation. Like, I mean, you know, I, I get the impression from speaking to people that like Emmett generally cares. He, I think he cares quite a bit. I mean, this is like, unconfirmed but i heard from somebody that like not very long after sort of the 70 30 split announcement and the the blowback to that that like you know somebody talked to him at an event they were both at and he was like not he wasn't expressing contrition exactly but he was like yeah i feel like we kind of dropped the ball here and you know i've got to we got to do something we got to sort of turn this around but you know in the at the twitchcon presentation itself the, the bigger issue was that like the whole presentation was pretty by the like by the numbers. It was very just like we're going to walk through things that we already announced earlier and just talk about things that you all know about things like, you know, guest star, which is like an option to take somebody out of your chat and bring them onto your stream and like a voice capacity. They did a big, weird commercial for that and Overwatch 2 at the same time. It just all felt like they didn't really have much to show or announce that was exciting or additive to the overall Twitch experience. So they're just like, hey, remember these things that like we already announced that you sort of like, which is kind of the bigger issue in general at this point is that, you know, conventional wisdom says that when you take something away from people, even at a relatively small scale, if you're speaking in terms of actual tangible, like measurable numbers, as with the 70-30 split, then, you know, the best way to kind of counteract the blowback to that is to say, hey, but we're also giving you something. Um, even if that's not like more money in your pockets right away, just like something cool, something to be like, Hey, we're still in it for you. Yeah. And they just yeah. didn't really have anything like that. And I get the impression that they sort of hope guest star will prove to be that. I think that they're looking at it as a potential, like addition to the ecosystem that will have longer sort of spanning benefits. Like I heard one of the, uh, I think it was Tom who was their head of product be like, yeah, I think it's going to be a major tool for discovery, which I do find interesting. Right. Because his basic thesis or his basic like theory is that people will use it to sort of, you know, grab other streamers out of their audiences, mm. maybe smaller streamers, put them in front of a really big crowd. And then that will like create new stars. Yeah. Like if somebody like Hassan pulls a smaller political streamer up, suddenly you got like a, a, a like potential new Hassan or something. Will that actually happen? I don't know. But at the same time, when you don't know that's going to happen and you go up on stage and say, here's all our cool, new, exciting stuff. You know, you can't just lean on that because it hasn't happened yet. So, yeah, it was just this like very perfunctory kind of like, we're here, everyone be excited. And people were like, yeah, we're excited to be here, but we're not excited excited about Twitch right now because you're not giving us anything mm -hmm. to be excited about. Yeah, that's that's interesting because I think, uh, I mean, that guest art functionality, some of it already exists with Raid as well and, and how Raids work because, I mean, I 
I interviewed Ewok some years ago and that's how they were discovered was Tim the Tabman raids. And so like there's a little bit of that that already happens uh, on the platform, you know, like big streamers sort of funneling into friends or other streamers and sort of giving other people platforms. It doesn't seem like I understand how it's different. I understand it could be like more engaging, but it also just seems like it's not necessarily the top of the list feature. I. I, I yeah, but I do think. I mean, I, I do think that actually there's something more there, though, because I think that as a result of the pandemic, Twitch culture as a whole became a lot more collaborative, like even as even outside the pandemic, even now that like people are interacting again in person, you see tons more overlap and like streamers doing events and things together. And so I do think that like Twitch is probably onto something here because like you're saying, they're taking an already built in culture of like pointing your community in the direction of somebody who is maybe smaller or what have you and like boosting them. And then you're adding the element of actual direct interaction into that. And like, you know, again, to bring it back to the dream group, one of the things that we see in terms of what people really latch on to are like what appear to be friendships. And so if you like create even the illusion of a friendship with a big streamer, then the person, the other person in the friendship, it's an enormous boost. So like, right. you know, I don't think they're off base and expecting big things out of that, out of that feature. It's just that that has not come to pass yet. And you can't hype it up like it has. Right. That makes sense. All right. So let's talk Foam Pit. Um, <laughs> the, for the people unfamiliar, because I think we should maybe explain this a little bit in the episode before we dive into the, to the bulk of it. Lenovo was doing an activation on the TwitchCon 4 that involved a Foam Pit. And as I sort of saw from watching a little bit of it, Gladiator type competition thing. Is that right, Nathan? Sort of. Yep. Two yeah. big old batons and you try to push each other off. Right. So this foam pit uh, made massive, even mainstream media headlines this weekend because a adult film star, Adriana Shekik, who is also a Twitch streamer, won in the foam pit and did a celebration dive uh, ass first into the foam pit and broke as several portions of her back and has said that she has had to have surgery or has to have surgery to mend those that portion of the, her broken back. And the most safe for work way possible described yesterday that it will impact her adult film work as well in, in a way. So obviously this became extremely viral for obvious reasons. This is somewhat of, of general note anyway, having a very severe injury um, in a in a way that makes everyone involved liable in some case. I've seen a lot of lawyers commentate on it was I mean, I guess was the foam pit. Uh, we'll start here. Was this foam pit activation with the Lenovo, the gladiator style thing? Was this of intrigue in the first place? Like, were people actually paying attention to it mm -hmm. before all the injury? I mean, yeah, I think so. I, I get the impression that people on the show floor generally knew where it was just because it was like this big, you know, ostentatious display. And yeah, I think that a lot of people were like approaching it and being like, yeah, we'll, we'll give it a try because again, it was content, right? If you are like, streaming around TwitchCon, walking around with like a camera, doing an IRL stream. When you see something like that, you're like, yeah, that that will be great for viewership. It'll be exciting and weird and, you know, potentially funny. I think that's why a lot of people like jumped into it and stuff and injured themselves because like you have something like that and you could just play by its rules or you could do a big jump. It'd be like, whoa, you know, that was crazy. But I mean, it was, you know, obviously nowhere near the interest level it ultimately attained. I think it gained hilariously. I think it got way more attention after it shut down. Because when I was like down there asking questions of the people there and, you know, checking it out, like so many groups of people came up to like put their hand in the pit to see how deep it was and to like feel the foam and stuff. Mm. Like entire crowds of people just come up, do that, leave. 
What uh, just to be clear, was was Twitch involved in that activation in any capacity? No, no, no. Okay, so no, that was not theirs. Was it a third party um, vendor that was, running it for Lenovo? Was or what? What did you gain from your reporting on the arrangement of that phone? But yeah, so the the actual company that handled the activation directly, like built the pit, came up with the idea. It's called Kairos Media. Mm. Um, and, uh, yeah, they are, I guess, based in the UK. Yep. Yeah. I I've reached out to them directly, both in terms of, I reached out to the company and also the person that I've learned is like responsible for coming up with the idea and heard nothing back from them. I think they're probably pretty tamped down right that right now because they are justifiably afraid of being sued. But yeah, so that's kind of like the general idea. Then beyond that, it was, you know, it was a Lenovo Intel thing. That's what was on all the signage. And it was like their they were they were live streaming it basically so it was like a big pit where you right. know if you went there you consented to appear on a live stream without any sort of pay or remittance and uh, yeah yeah that's basically it the video was pretty well publicized of adriana taking sort of the butt dive in and being in excruciating pain and trying to like crawl out of it while commentators were like oh she's okay she wasn't but what was what was the i mean were you around when that specific moment happened like on the floor or is no, it something you started there. like figuring out Got yeah, it. no, I I was not there for the moment. In in the fallout, because it remained open even after that happened, right? The it, the pit remained open for a certain period of time. It didn't get immediately shut down. Yeah, I believe that the I believe that she fell on Saturday, and then it was open until noon on Sunday. Wow. And from your sort of visual appeal, the things we couldn't see on the screen, were there any impact pads or anything under the foam pit, or was it just however much foam? It was pretty hard ground. I mean, there was like, because it was like a, the construction of the sides of it, it was like a pit, it was like a kiddie pool. So it was sort of like, but like the underneath part of it was very like just solid. And again, this thing was so short, like I cannot stress how much, how short it was. It like, I stood next to it to get a ballpark estimate of the size of it. And it came up to maybe a little bit above my knee. So like Mm. at max, a couple feet tall and like, you know. The, the foam coverage was inconsistent, right? So like more toward the middle, they had the foam cubes kind of stacked up in a way that created a sort of like arching from, like it arched up from the sides essentially. But I mean, like, especially toward the edges, just like there is no way a human being should be jumping into that. Were like, there warning even signs? Even if you are relatively small, not to? it would still not. What? Were there warning signs not to jump into it? That I don't know, but you still have the issue of, you know, if you're on the platforms in the middle, which is where you're doing like the combat, because you stand on these platforms, so they probably raise you off. They raise you a little bit above like the height of the edge of the pit. So that would probably put you like three, maybe four feet off ground, right? And so like if you fall off that, which every time somebody plays the game, the loser is going to, that's the point, then you fall into it. So I mean, like, I don't know if they're actually, I can probably just pull that up because I, I, I can look at the waiver. I, th- I know they had a few things that were against the rules, that was one of the other reasons they closed it down, at least as they told me. They're like, we closed it not only because somebody got hurt, because people kept breaking the rules up to including like hitting each other in the face and things like that. And so I know the waiver stipulated that you can't hit people in the face. Here, let's see. I have the waiver handy-ish. Just need to pull it up. Here we go. It's kind of long. But yeah, anyway. Whether or not people were allowed to jump, it was still highly dangerous to even fall into it. Yeah, I saw I saw Ludwig made a video about PushCon in general, and he was like, even I like, 
he belly flopped into the end of the pit. So yeah, made it out okay, he said, but certainly like seems like it was a danger to itself, even even if you yeah, even a belly flop could probably result in something with a big enough human being. Oh yeah. So. No, I mean and there were people there's one person I talked to who just like fell in the normal way and apparently had trouble walking for the rest of the night. So you know. Not great. Was it there was an ankle injury, a broken ankle that was not the same booth, right? I think some people said it was originally. There were weirdly two different booths with like a foam pit element. Okay. There there was another one that was smaller, but I think maybe a little bit had a little bit more depth to it. But yeah, they did not really get much heat on them because this was definitely the the bigger one and the one where more people got hurt. That was the clipped one. The one that went like social media viral, everybody sharing it across Twitter and other forms of, of social as well. Right, of course. Have you spoken to any attorneys uh, since the that injury happened it, in terms of like even the waiver that you have showing it to them and sort of under, trying to get their understanding of liability here? I have not done that yet. That's a good idea. I've sort of been on like other TwitchCon related assignments too. I've been juggling <laughs> a lot. But yeah, I mean like my my plan is to sort of jump back onto this story in the near future because I think there is a solid chance that, you know, especially once Adriana like kind of is no longer in pain and as part of her recovery that they will probably decide to press charges in some capacity or do something on the legal end. I mean, either that'll happen or, you know, Lenovo and whatever other companies will say like, Hey, we'll give you some money if you decide to be quiet now. Um, Yeah. But yeah, I mean, in either case, that's worth pursuing further. The impression I've gotten though, from people talking about it online is that, you know, a waiver only goes so far. And if you are being negligent, then a waiver is not good enough. And I think especially given like what people have said are the standard sizes for pits like this, things like that, there's probably a case to be made that this was active negligence. So again, I, I think that these companies are pretty, are likely, and again, I'm not a lawyer, but are probably likely open to some sort of legality. Yeah, bare minimum. I mean, I've seen foam pits of that kind at other events, and they have sort of like the gymnastics, like impact pads at the bottom, right? Like if you go to like mm-hmm. any like jump center or something, those are everywhere. Like they're always at the bottom of that because you hit one of those and you're okay. Like that, right. it has enough padding to like kind of, and, and it's thick enough and hard enough that you're not going to like just hit bare concrete or whatever the flooring is in this case. Yeah. So. And I mean, also like those things are usually very deep, right? Like I mean, right. I, you know, this is maybe apples and oranges to some extent, but like when I was a kid, I did gymnastics and they had a giant pit like that. And like, you could get lost in it because it was deep enough that like, it was like jumping into a pool, which is a much more sensible size for a human being to be jumping into. Right. It's enough to cushion the blow before your like legs or other parts of you hit the ground. Right. It's something I'm of great intrigue for me too. just like paying attention, especially if there is an actual legal proceeding. Cause that's, it's my bread and butter as a reporter is, is legal filings. Yeah, so we have our first audience question. They've asked us to read this. This is from Sparta. And the question is, Nathan, do you see another mass exodus of Twitch streamers jumping ship and going to YouTube after the 70-30 split was eliminated? Man, this is interesting to me because it supposes that there's been a previous mass exodus, which I don't think is really the case. I think we've seen a lot of like visible names you know, go to YouTube as a result of YouTube offering them money to do so. But the actual total number is not particularly huge. And in fact, Twitch essentially bets on this, right? That when these creators leave, like, yes, they leave, but most of their audiences stick around. And then like in the absence of these creators, somebody else will like rise up to fill that void 
for better or worse, that's largely worked out for them, right? Like, I don't think you really have the stardom of like to, to use a, an older example. And this is actually an example that I think really informed Twitch's thinking on all of this. Now, you don't really have like the stardom that Tifu achieved back in the day without Ninja leaving, um, right. you know, those sorts of moments where you already had a creator who was on the up and up and then a superstar leaves and they just become the new superstar. I, I have it on pretty good authority that Twitch has made a lot of decisions based on the fact that that happened back in 2019. So, Mass Exodus, not really sort of more of just like a contained one. Will there be one as a result of the 70-30 thing? I mean, again, I, you know, as much as people are threatening it, I think probably not. Because again, Twitch is where a lot of this audience is, it's where the culture is, it's where the community is. And also like the thing about people in general is that they don't really make major changes in their life unless something becomes tangibly unbearable. And because the 70-30 split only really tangibly impacts a small number of creators, I think that a lot of them are upset right now and will continue to be upset and will continue to look at this as like another nail in the coffin of like their positive feelings towards Twitch as a platform. But materially, not that much will change for them. And they will probably ultimately be like, I'm just going to stick around here. Add to that the fact that people are now broadly allowed to stream and make content on every platform at once. And that even like multi-streaming, right? You can, on Twitch, you're allowed to do, regardless of your size, on Instagram and TikTok at the same time as you do on Twitch. You know, why throw away that audience? Why get rid of it when you can instead multiply your audience by huge numbers just by being in many places at once? Like there are just all these reasons to still stay on it, which again, I think Twitch is betting on. They, they know that after this outrage, so after this like sort of dies down, that things will normalize again. And like, you know, I, I wish that there was a greater recourse for streamers. You know, you see people talking about the idea of organizing or unionizing in some capacity. Unfortunately, that's really hard when like everybody's an independent contractor and, you know, the, the biggest names that can sort of make things move on that front are not incentivized to do so because they're already making bank. But yeah, I think that like, I, I do not foresee particularly enormous change uh, in terms of who's on Twitch and who's not as a result of this. Well, and the bigger problem there more generally is just that it, you know, we had Cecilia, your former colleague and my friend on this pod a few weeks ago, as well as Zach Diaz, who's former Twitch employee. And they were both talking, we talked at length about the cost it takes to run a live streaming website of this kind. There aren't many options out there. Like YouTube is great, but YouTube has a problem for, at least for live, has a problem for live discoverability for not people who are already popular on the platform, right? And Twitch has the same problem, but it, it feels like because of the game directory, the way it's laid out, et cetera, it, there's, there is a chance, or at least a little bit of a bigger chance to make it on, on Twitch as a live creator versus YouTube. If you are a strictly live creator, you don't have shorts or VOD sort of aspirations, right? It, it's And it's, I mean, Google's the only other company that's been able to figure it out. And that's because it's a fraction of their YouTube business, which is much much larger as well mm -hmm. so there's not going to be a also twitch competitor that pops up and sustains it feels like yeah also the the meta right now right is that you live stream both on twitch and tiktok at the same time and then you point your tiktok audience to your twitch stream so basically they discover you through tiktok because tiktok is a massive discovery engine that is so finely calibrated as to make everything else seem unsophisticated and then when you pop up on there, right, like people switch over, watch your stream and you just like either have something on screen 
or like you just say like, hey, if you want a better experience in my stream, which if somebody already clicked over to you, they're committed, just go to Twitch. And like that works pretty well. I know a lot of streamers who've grown pretty substantially just because they have a good TikTok presence. Yeah, that's that's interesting. And that actually leads us into our next question, which is uh, this is the time to turn up your phone. But from Chris Kovalik, who has a question about platform platform meta more generally. The, the nature of the question, you, you, it really did dovetail nicely into what you were just speaking about with the meta of creators going to other platforms for discoverability and then using those platforms as like a funnel back to their home base. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm, I'm wondering, you know, taking, taking this, this meta in mind, the fact that you, we talked about how at TwitchCon, there's the Dream SMP people who aren't even natively on Twitch, you have the 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 let's chat uh, uh, category, which isn't even the the heritage of, of Twitch being gaming focused. Do, do you where do you see this this trend going? Do you think that you know future TikTokers will live stream on a different place? Uh, you know, is it too early to tell what what's happening? But where do you see this all going? Yeah, I mean, again. I, I sort of think the direction of things is that everyone in the future is going to be a an on everything creator, right? They're just like in the sense that we view them now, there just won't be Twitch streamers, which is like sort of you know, I I think like, it, but in the same way, there won't be like somebody who's like I'm purely a YouTuber or purely a TikToker. Like already, most people just call themselves creators now, right? And like you know, that is on one hand like interesting from a labor perspective because it means that they have to work doubly or quadruply hard especially when they're on the come up that's additional work that is really hard for one person to do it also leads to like interesting opportunities that's why we're already seeing tons of cross-platform collaborations youtubers and twitch streamers like collaborate all the time now even when like youtubers are allegedly exclusive to that platform yeah so i mean i think it just keeps going this way until like the idea of somebody just being purely a twitch streamer is gone i have one follow-up that and we'll have to end after this everybody because nathan's got to bounce to do some Washington Post activities. But the follow-up I have for that is creators becoming mainstream. I think to a certain audience, they already are and in most sense. But, you know, we had Ludwig on the show a few weeks ago and he said something that sort of resonated that like even he still has to explain his job through the lens of Mr. Beast or Ninja that they haven't sort of crossed, like even as someone as big as him is not cross the paradigm shift quite yet and i think what's really interesting is we've seen these creators try other things other mediums right we've seen a couple of like behind paywalls traditional entertainment streaming type deals for some of these guys etc do you think that there's a world where that works because i think there's a reluctance to paying for content among this audience more generally they like to feel like voluntarily paying for content subscribing tipping right feeling like they're a part of a bigger community patreon is the same way that parasocial paying for something but like if there's going to be a a Ludwig documentary on Netflix tomorrow, or even a smaller platform that maybe they don't have a subscription to. Do you think there's a world where this audience actually moves to other platforms for those one-off things or, or is they just not going to be successful? I mean, yeah, for one-offs, that's just a bigger ask because like part of the appeal of the platform ecosystems, you know, like you just go there and things are reliable. The things that you want to find are reliably there. I mean, I think that like if someone is sufficiently large, sure, they could do a documentary or something and get somebody to like, get a portion of their audience to go pay for it somewhere. But I mean, it would be a, a vastly diminished portion. 
it's just like if you're already you know like as big as mr beast or somebody then that's fine that's enough like a fraction of you know millions upon millions is still like hundreds of thousands but yeah i mean like i think broadly you know everything still happens in this ecosystem and like you know new platforms might arise though that's increasingly difficult given that there are behemoths who will just like take your ideas and use them as their own and then try to crush you but yeah i think broadly speaking it mostly continues to resemble this because the other part is you know even even creators who have kind of a uh i don't know i don't know how you would put it like they have more platforms that you have to go to and spend money on like for example only fans creators people like amaranth right talking to amaranth she has told me that like she views she views twitch a is like you know a fun part of her job she likes doing it but the what, what she calls it is a funnel right so you start at the top with twitch and then people funnel into your patreon and only fans and again it's because it's voluntary it's because it starts out free that's just like a key part of that process i don't think that you you know you can't acquire new users off of just like go pay for that because it doesn't work that way so like the the that those elements, the free parts of it will always be super necessary given just the way the internet works and how much of it is intrinsically or not intrinsically because everything has a cost, but like how much of it presents itself as free. Yeah. I'll be curious to see how that evolves for, for users that aren't making sort of lewd new NSFW content as well, because like that, that funnels existed for forever. Actually, the porn industry is probably the pioneer of live streaming and VOD. Like they've always been ahead of the curve, but the, I'll be curious to see, like, if you if that's not your beat, if that's not what you're doing as a part of your content creation in a way, like, how do you get people to do that? And we've seen some successes. I mean, The Yard is like Ludwig's podcast is the second most popular Patreon, I think, last I checked um, in terms of Patreon campaign. So it it does work, but it, it feels like that funnel is still being kind of determined for a lot of creators. Yeah. And also, it's still like, I mean, Ludwig's primary platforms are still not that, right? Yep. That's like something for people who are really into him to go do and experience and pay for. But I think it does point to something that we're going to see more and more of, which is that as people get fed up with trying to like make a living on Twitch because maybe options for doing so go away or they feel like Twitch is really putting the squeeze on them to try to get as much money out of them as possible. You know, people can pretty easily, especially when they already have big audiences, say, hey, instead of like donating to me or subscribing to me on Twitch, just go subscribe to my Patreon. Yeah. I get a better cut over there. Just do that. And like, you know, that's going to that will be difficult for smaller creators because that's asking for a lot. Yeah, it's too many but clicks I mean, past a certain size. Once you become large enough, a, a substantial portion of your audience will go do that. And like, you'll make more money that way. So I think we're going to see more and more people embracing that kind of a model or like, you know, again, giving people bonus content through those means saying, if you go do this and I'll get a better pay split. And you'll get something you can't get elsewhere. Yeah, we'll end on this because I know you got to bounce, which is your book. You announced uh, pre-pandemic that you were writing a book about creators. I've done mm -hmm. some exploratory stuff that I've talked about before about doing a book on Twitch, the business more so from like a, its evolution and, and the history of things, because there's a lot that I think people don't know that I've already kind of discovered in some of that reporting. Where, mm -hmm. where are you at it? it because I know it's kind of been delayed a little bit, but every book is delayed. Yeah, I can. I'll, I'll do a live announcement, I guess, which is basically that. Yeah. So my manuscript now has a final due date because, yeah, for, for those who don't know, the idea behind the book is that it's sort of like a, a behind the scenes documentary 
documentary style sort of exploration of like the lives of a bunch of different streamers and other people who are like in and around that scene with the goal of kind of creating a representative sample of like the Twitch and live streaming scene. And so each streamer represents sort of a different element of that world or that business. And the thing about that is going behind the scenes was really difficult during the pandemic, impossible in many cases, because you couldn't go anywhere. So I basically had to sit on it for about two years until people were finally comfortable, you know, letting me into their homes and things like that again. So I've gotten to do a lot of that work this year. And uh, my final final manuscript is due on February 1st of next year, meaning the book will come out sometime between February and April of 2024. So yeah, that's release window, spring 2024, because books take a really long time. Can we have uh, any scoops on who who's in the book in terms of who you've embedded with creator wise? Already, I've done the work with, let's see, I've got a list somewhere in my notes doc. It's much easier to remember that way. And I'll just do it off the top of my head. Let's see, Co-Carnage, Amaranth, Keffels, Nico Lowell, Code Miko, whose names are similar. Um, <laughs> before the end of the year, if everything goes according to plan, Hassan, Ludwig, um, let's see, DJ Wheat, Tani DePass, who's a smaller creator who's nonetheless very fascinating, Nega Oryx, who's another smaller creator who's really interesting. I've forgotten anybody. That's up to 10. That's a lot. And then I'm going to do a couple other chapters that are sort of focused on elements of the live streaming world that don't get talked about that much. So like moderating, things like that. The sort of invisible labor that makes it all work, essentially. So yeah, that's kind of the basic outline of it. It's going to be really cool. I'm super excited because it's been a lot of really, really eye-opening conversations. As it turns out, and you know, not to denigrate what you're doing here because you're doing really good work. But like having conversations over video and over the phone only goes so far in a lot of cases. That's true. Yeah. And it turns out if you just go meet somebody where they are, especially in an environment where they are comfortable, they'll tell you a lot of really interesting stuff and really dig deep into what it means to do all of this and live this life. And I think that like the cool thing about this book that will hopefully kind of future proof it, even though it's going to be like, you know, things that I learned in 2022 coming out in 2024 is that like it's really turned out to be a lot of people in really pivotal moments. So like, you know, moments that decided the future of their careers, moments where they weren't certain about what was going to happen next or moments where they decide, realized what they actually wanted to do versus what they had been doing. And I think there's always something to that. There's always something, something to be gleaned from it that you're not seeing on camera because they're not talking about it. They're just going and being live every day. And I think it's also kind of a snapshot of this moment where Twitch, again, maybe is kind of making itself slowly irrelevant or at least pushing itself to a point where creators are no longer as enamored with it as they once were. That's all for our show. If you like this episode of Visionaries, you can find others in our podcast feed on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please leave us a review. It's super helpful for our growth and for others to find the podcast themselves. Special thanks to Sammy Daig and Prime Thought Amkara for helping with this episode. We'll see you next week. <laughs>